Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on this very special episode because today I have Dr. Praveen Ganti from Toronto joining me on the show. Thank you and welcome, Praveen. Thank you for having me, Wayne. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Excellent. Well, Dr. Ganti is a consultant in pain medicine and anesthesiology, and he now works in Toronto at the Alivio Pain Management Group there. But in former times, he trained in India with anesthesiology and then in the UK, where I also trained, and then went on to do a fellowship in chronic pain before moving on to work as a consultant in the last 10 years in the UK. So welcome to Canada. You've probably been here a few years. Let's get talking about why you chose chronic pain as an area of interest and study and work. That's a very interesting question, Wayne. It actually was during my med school years uh, back in India and then also later on in the UK as an anesthesiology resident in training, I realized that the surgeons were excellent at doing the surgery and to treat pain, to treat the condition itself, but they were not very much bothered about the patient's pain when it came to the post-operative wardrobe. They would just say, okay, yes, uh, somebody will come and look at you or the nurse will give you medication. Now, it was my firm belief that acute pain, that is immediate pain that occurs within a few days to a few weeks, if not treated properly, turns into chronic pain. And as is the case, I did a bit of literature search and that is actually quite true that if you don't treat acute pain properly, it does turn into chronic pain. And then I went and delved a bit deeper. This was when I was trying to make up my mind whether to actually go into cardiothoracic or to neurosurgery or neuroanesthesia or probably go into chronic pain. And then I realized that actually chronic pain is as bad or as big an epidemic as cancer, except that the governments all over the world, they try to give money and donate money into cancer because obviously it is a killer. What they do not realize is that chronic pain also kills, except that it doesn't kill the individual per se. It kills relationships. It kills the economy of the country very slowly because there are more people taking days off work and time of work and not contributing positively to the economy and therefore not actually paying the taxes. And indirectly, therefore, there's a huge impact. And in fact, in the UK at that time, approximately chronic pain incidence was around 20%. That is one in five people actually have chronic pain. And what is interesting with chronic pain is, the reason I'm giving it an analogy to cancer is that just like cancer, you can't see it. Yes, there are certain types of cancer you can see, but in chronic pain, the person sitting next to you in a subway, in a car, in a train, actually may be suffering severely with pain, but unless he tells you or he grimaces, he or she, 
or uh, they try to walk and then they're wobbling, they're not recognized. And they don't actually want to show that they're in chronic pain because most of them think it's a stigma. I have so many patients who actually say, uh, oh, I cannot actually get a handicapped car parking sticker because if I do get it, I'm so young and uh, people will actually start thinking that I'm actually faking it. And there are lots of people who do not want to walk with, I have 85-year-old, 90-year-old patients with severe pain and they don't want to use a walking stick. They don't mind losing their ball ends and probably having it fall, but they don't want to use a walking stick because they realize that, uh, oh, actually it's a stigma. I don't want to look old. And uh, this is how society sort of stigmatizes chronic pain or patients in chronic pain. And uh, thanks to the media and the internet and everything else, if somebody is in chronic pain, the other big problem is that if all the investigations and all the tests are negative, then that means, quote, there's nothing wrong with you. You are actually faking it. And this is a, a huge psychological stigma to the patient as well. So then I realized that there are so many facets to this very interesting condition, which is, well, it's not exactly a single condition, but to this problem of chronic pain that I decided, let me delve into it and see how I can help people. And here we are. Wonderful. Well, thanks for eliminating that story because it is so true and it's something I can relate to myself with with now, you know, over two decades of patients with pain coming in and a very similar story. The stigma associated with it is up there with mental health, it's up there with cancer and, you know, this is why we're here tonight. This is why we're talking about this essential subject and unless people know, things are not going to change because we know things in medicine take a long time to change and we need social media, we need different avenues to educate the public so we can move forward. So let's dive in because I know one of your passions within this field is to get patients off chemicals that treat pain and that includes opioids. Now that's quite a big statement because you as well as I know there's a role for chemicals, these medications that our colleagues are handing out, but your passion is getting people off them. So can you describe why that's the case? Yes, because what we need to remember is uh, probably, uh, I was once told back in med school, that the origin of the word drug, that is the common technical term we use for medication, is drug in French, which actually means poison. And if you look at it, every single drug is a poison. Yes, what is probably a medication to one person, if it is taken in overdose or depending on the patient's genetic makeup, it actually can have adverse effects and therefore it is a poison. And secondly, these are all chemicals, 99% of them are actually formulated or made by man. In other words, they are hydrogenic. They are created by doctors or pharmacists or pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so they're not actually natural. And we were not born with these chemicals inside us. The, the body has its own system of chemicals, as you know, called endorphins to fight pain. And so there are numerous techniques now that functional medicine is coming up with, which actually boost these endorphin secretions, which actually help us. The most common, the simple thing is daily exercise. The reason we all feel great or one would expect one to feel great after half an hour of exercise every day or a short run is because the endorphins in the brain actually are circulating in the body and then they are sort of calming down all these quote-unquote sore muscles. And it also gives a sense of slight euphoria. Now look at what morphine does. It does something similar. It actually does take away pain, but it also tries to give you a sense of euphoria. Obviously, it depends on the dose you take. And that, again, is what it's doing. It's actually playing on the same system or similar system. 
And so it is with dopamine, the reward system. Even that is secreted when somebody is doing exercise. So there are so many things that the human body already has within it that we don't have to depend on these chemicals. Yes, you can probably start them or start a patient on these drugs, but after some time, we have to take collective responsibility, both the physician and the patient. Check, choke out a comprehensive plan and slowly wean them off these chemicals. And that's one of my passions. Wonderful. I love that. I can relate to this. And several years ago, I almost entirely quit prescribing medications for patients and because my practice did change and I was able to do that. And I do spend a lot of time, like you do, talking to patients about how they control their own chemistry, you know, their own medications that come from within them, like the, the endocannabinoid system, like cannabis mm-hmm. that is produced Absolutely. in our bodies. Let's talk a little bit about that, not too much, but just to educate mm-hmm. the public on what do you mean there's cannabis growing inside of us or within the receptors and helping our pain? Can you help us with that? Yeah, essentially what we call cannabis or the cannabinoid system is another of the neurological systems that we have in our body, which helps to regulate tiny, numerous chemical reactions in the body, especially in the brain and the spinal cord. Now, one of them is to modulate pain. It may not help control pain. What it does is these are all the systems which the neuroscientists call as immunomodulators or neuromodulators. So essentially, it's like, think of them as catalysts in a chemical reaction. So they can either slow down the reaction or they can increase the speed of the reaction. So most of these cannabinoid receptors, that's what they do. They are actually built to either give a sense of euphoria or to, again, ease pain. And the problem that we have in the world of pharmaceutical chemistry, for example, if you talk about antibiotics, as a physician, you will know that we haven't had a new antibiotic in at least two decades now. Most of the ones that we are using, our bodies, the organisms are getting resistant to it and our bodies are getting lots of reactions to that. So it, it is actually going to be epidemic, this ticking time bomb as if new infection comes and most of the antibiotics are resistant, we are going to have lots of people dying eventually. That may be coming up maybe in the next, uh, hopefully, never, but it may be coming up, it may be true in the next two decades. The same with pain as well. Once we discovered that, okay, opioids are sort of the Bible of chronic pain and everybody's jumped onto the opioid bandwagon, there were a few quiet voices which were saying, hang on, are we really doing our patients any favor? But these were obviously not listened to. Big Pharma got in and we know exactly what uh, happened after that. For example, with Purdue Chemicals, uh, Purdue Pharma and all down south in the US. The same is, I think, happening with cannabis. Cannabis or medical cannabis has a specific role, but it is not the answer to every kind of pain. And this is extremely important for the listeners to realize that just because, oh, okay, it is available freely, they can just walk into a medical cannabis clinic and get a prescription. A, it is expensive, and B, while it is claimed that it does not do any harm, to be honest, it is a new medication and we are not very sure. The problem with medicine is the epidemiological studies, they take decades. So only after 10 or 15 years do people realize that, okay, maybe it may not be the best thing that we should have tried at that time. So to be honest, that's what is happening. We're still in, in our infancy, collectively speaking, regarding the use of cannabis or cannabinoids. But the endocannabinoids are interesting. 
the natural ones are actually stimulated by certain kinds of, again, exercise. And even I'm told by some functional medicine experts with certain kinds of diet. And maybe that's what we should look at. Stimulate or ask your own body to produce what could actually fight the pain rather than depend on these chemicals. Because as we know, for example, the cannabis that people get in the street corner, that could be contaminated with so many things. I've heard that some of the patients actually, uh, they take it, they end up in the ER because it's contaminated with rat poison, which contains warfarin. They end up with severe bleeding diathesis, all because the dealer wanted to get rid of that particular person who was probably bothering that patient, the the dealer read too much about buying it. So so we have all these kinds of um, contaminants as well. So I'm not saying that the medical grade does not have, uh, is not pure. What I'm saying is we need to, again, exercise caution. Just because there's a new kid on the market doesn't mean that's the best kid in the market. Yes, exactly. So you've, we've talked about exercise and diet. Is there any other specific normal everyday activity we could be doing to enhance our natural approaches for chronic pain management? I actually am planning to commence a study quite soon on the use of transcendental meditation. Because what I've found is that meditation actually does calm people, especially in chronic pain. And I'm also a trained hypnotherapist and hypnotherapy does the same. And my hypothesis is that because we actually trigger off either the endocannabinoid system or maybe even the endorphins to be secreted, especially during meditation. And when I say meditation, people get confused. They easily confuse religion with spirituality. What is important is that we are talking about spirituality, which could be, you may not have to believe in anything. You can be an agonist. That's absolutely fine. But just concentrate on yourself. And that is what mindfulness comes in. So maybe a good session of half an hour of mindfulness, just thinking about yourself, a bit of introspection every day in a quiet place, that might just be the trick to trigger things off. Yes, and that's something that, that I also talk to patients about. And, you know, you can take your five senses, your sight, you can take your taste, you can take your smell, you can take touch. And just think of those things, maybe for just five minutes, like eat food and just think about the flavor or go for a walk and just be aware of your feet hitting the ground. Or, you know, you're outside and you're listening to the wind blowing. chirping and you know it's amazing how simple that we can bring our awareness and our mindful state and therefore the brain and the areas of the pain are being subdued and you know calmed and more the the calming aspect of the nervous system as you know as we as we talk to our patients about the the parasympathetic aspect of the nervous system is being triggered in calming down this other part related to chronic pain states so yes that's definitely something that we should all be doing, I think, for our health because it helps so many different things, never mind mm-hmm. just chronic pain in this busy, busy world that we live in. If I may add to that, the other thing, interesting aspect we could actually try is probably maybe give ourselves a half an hour away from our daily devices, which includes our smartphones and our iPads. Because what we don't realize is that all these devices actually do trigger the sympathetic system. It's like every time you have an alert, let's say you have a notification about your social chat or a notification that your new email, automatically, if we were to connect you to a blood pressure monitor and a heart rate monitor, they would actually spike up transiently, but it spikes up. And we know that the sympathetic system actually can stimulate pain or at least continue 
have a positive cycle of stimulating pain. And that is what we need to stop or we can easily control that bit because it's in our hands. All we do is, okay, I'm going to have a no phone holiday for say two hours every day. It's not difficult. If you look at it, our grandparents and maybe even our parents, they never had smartphones. What is really sad today is we do everything with our phone except speak to people. The whole point that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone was for us to speak to people. But we don't do that anymore. We do everything else except speak. It's like even if somebody calls, you actually hang up and then say, I'll talk to you later. And we text them. We don't actually tell them. We text them. So I think we need to take a step back and then say, okay, yes, uh, modern life is making life simple in lots of ways. But is it also compounding our own condition, such as chronic pain? So true. So true. Any other parallels on this subject? Any other parallels that just, I can think of? Like, yeah, just simple things like this. No social media for like one hour, two hours yes. per day. Yes. The other parallel that I have is uh, the culture of instant gratification that we are in. Thanks to companies like Amazon, where, you know, okay, you want something, we can deliver it to you the same day if you're, a, let's say, a prime member. I'm just giving you a, a very crude example <laughs> And uh, a disclaimer, I myself am a prime member, so I I have used that service. (laughs) The the problem with that is people extrapolate it to the medical world. So, for example, in our clinic, we have an average waiting list of around four months before we see a patient, a new patient. The moment I see a patient and make a plan, let's assume I say, okay, let's do some diagnostic blocks on you, on the fluoroscopy. The first thing they ask is, are you doing it today? And I tell them, no, I have a waiting list. It might probably be a couple of weeks. Oh, I waited four months. I thought we were going to do the blog today. Can you not fit me in today? So what is happening due to this instant gratification culture is that they want everything to be done immediately. Not only that, they also want the results immediately. It's like you try to talk to them about a new medication. They they give you a call after three days and say, please tell Dr. Ganti it's not working. And then you go to work and talk to them give them a call back, explain to them about the pharmacokinetics and see how does that drug work in, on an average, any drug that works in the nervous system takes at least six to 12 weeks at a minimum for you to notice any difference. The side effects you'll probably notice immediately, but the efficacy you'll have to wait for some time. So that is something, I don't know if you have it in your practice, Wayne, but I see it quite a lot, especially with the youngsters. Anybody around the age of 30, 30 20s to 30s, this is what they want the culture of instant gratification. Yeah, so true, so true. I think you're hitting home home run with this one. Absolutely. Okay, any others? The other session I would have, at least for uh, some patients, uh, I actually came across a patient just last month. Uh, it's, it's quite a worrying and uh, I would say almost a sad story. This was a gentleman who was referred to us by his family physician after his the then pain consultant stopped giving him injections and he was getting approximately 12 injections every week for the past four years. Now, just so that your listeners are aware, there is absolutely no evidence that that particular practice works because all it does, and I believe it firmly, and it has been shown under microscope, pick changes, if somebody is doing a study, that repeated injections actually cause more harm because whatever the physician is putting in, they're actually just putting in local anesthetic. It's like going to the dentist. It'll probably wear off in three to four hours' time. So I understand that people want some pain relief and they're desperate for it. 
that so that doesn't mean that somebody goes and has uh, repeated injections because all it causes is microtrauma. Think of it this way. Every time somebody is poking you with a needle, there's a bit of local trauma there. So the body reacts with a bit of localized inflammation. You can see it, but it can be seen microscopically. And if somebody is doing that to you day in and I would say 10 to 12 times a week for three to four years, I can guarantee that's probably causing more harm, but it's not doing any good. So that is a culture that we need to actually educate our physician colleagues as well. So it is not a physician's fault altogether. The reason is they haven't ever been told that, okay, this is not something that we should do. And secondly, we need to worry also about the local anesthetic toxicity, which means that every time people are putting in that so-called quote-unquote freezing solution in the muzzle, repeated injections can actually cause damage to the muzzle. So those injections are not helping anyone in the long run. It might probably benefit some physicians uh, if they are billing for it, but that is the only benefit coming out of it. It's definitely not benefiting the patients. The sad story I was telling you about was this gentleman actually went on to have an injection, similar injections I was talking about just now, in the neck, and he actually had a cardiac arrest. So this is how scary it is. Because not only are some of these physicians injecting multiple injections, they're also doing it blindly by what is known as just the technique of blind injection or palpate, i.e. feel for the muzzle and go for it. And if you do it in the neck, as we all know, it is one of the most complicated areas of anatomy in the human body. So we have no clue where the tip of the needle could be. And uh, I think that's what happened. So luckily this patient could be resuscitated and I think he got a letter from that physician to come back, but he never went back. Uh, and then his oh. family physician referred somebody else. So this is the, the danger of the medical community not being aware that some of the practices, just because we consider it safe, may not actually be that safe. Okay, well, that's a telling story um, that is worth reflecting on, absolutely. And uh, thank you for, for bringing that up. Okay, just to wrap this up tonight, can you just share your experience of our therapy college, our you know, allied health professionals or physios and massage and chiropractic mm-hmm. treatments. What do you see the role alongside, say, a chronic pain clinic in helping our, our patients move forward with these types of therapies? I think they, they play a crucial role, especially if we want to get patients off all these chemicals that we were talking about, especially when it comes to physiotherapy. For example, we treat quite a lot of patients at our clinic with frozen shoulder. So what we do is under ultrasound guidance, I do something called hydrodissections. All I do is just inject maybe just one mil of local anesthetic with nine mils of saline and just inject under so that I can see where exactly my needle is and inject into the shoulder, trying to break up any fibrosis that is there, any fibers which are restricting the patient's movement. And I make it very clear to the patient that the treatment is not the injection. Treatment is movement. And then our chiropractors in the clinic, they begin to work on the patient extensively, give them some exercises, show them how to move the shoulder correctly. And uh, we do it, it depends on the patient, but normally within two or three treatments, the range of mobility increases by at least 60 to 70%. And I'm talking about a 70 to 75 year old patient with diabetic frozen shoulder for the past 10 years and all we need to understand is 90 percent of patients want a better quality of life and that's what i like to offer to them and i'm honest with them tell them that listen i cannot cure your pain because i only treat he cures 
So what I can do is I can chart a plan with you and you are in the driving seat. I will just guide you. So I'm like a driving instructor and we will chart out a plan that actually will help you improve the quality of your life. And this is where I cannot do it alone. So I need my allied colleagues. So that would be the physiotherapist. Some people believe in osteopaths and chiropractors. I'll be honest, I don't know much about the science of osteopathy. Having said that, we have an excellent one in our clinic who we all go to when we want a good relaxation and massage. But what we need to understand is that it has to be a holistic approach. Only one particular intervention or one particular treatment is not going to help a patient in chronic pain because there are so many different pathways of pain that neuroscientists are discovering almost on a monthly basis that pain always finds a way to the brain. And to be honest, if we didn't have brains, we wouldn't have felt any pain. But being human beings, we actually have a brain. All of us need it for lots of things. All we need to do is just make sure that the pain doesn't become an impediment in enjoying life. And that's where all these allied health professionals come in, be it chiropractors, be it massage therapists. The only comment I'd like to make here is, again, there are some physiotherapists out there who actually apparently connect a patient to a what sounds like an electrical tense machine and walk out of the room and come back up to 45 minutes and then charge people for a session. Now, that is not physical therapy to inform your listeners that that is not exactly physical therapy. Physical therapy, by definition, has to be hands-on. So somebody has to show you what to do. You have to be examined as a patient. Your restrictions have to be noted by that particular practitioner. And then they have to chart a plan. How can we actually modify the restriction or eventually show you the right way of doing the exercise? So that is physical therapy. That is how all these people have trained. But somewhere I think lethargy has crept in and they find an easy way out. I'm not talking about all practitioners, but I have heard about a few who actually do that. Very interesting, very, very good points. And I just like to thank you so much for just coming on and, and being yourself tonight and just sharing, you know, your stories as well as your, your experience with the science. And I love the fact that you're into research and, you know, you're bringing our understanding of pain into this clinical level. And, and you know, because we know for many years, for example, many hundreds and thousands of years that TCM and meditation works. It's just we need to kind of prove it. So I look forward to you know following up on that and, and seeing how, how the results transpire. So it's great. Just um, please just leave some information for our audience that we want to learn more about your services in Toronto or more about the things we're talking about today. Do you have a website or a, a link that we could be sent to? Uh, yes. Actually, if somebody goes onto any internet web browser, I will not name one over the other. Most people do say the big G, but essentially if they just look for Alivio pain management, that is currently the, the clinic that we work for. There are six of us. All of us are fellowship trained and that's quite important. The reason it's important is that when somebody is doing a fellowship, they actually concentrate only on that subspeciality. So they know more and more. So specialization by definition is knowing more and more about the less and less. So in all probability, then those specialists who have done fellowships will be able to help you more than someone who has not done a fellowship. It's a generalization, but it is a valid generalization. So they could go onto that website, Alivio Pain Management or AlivioClinic.com. Uh, we are based at uh, North York. 
and very close to the major motorways. We also have, I think, a, good, a few good hotels. The reason I'm mentioning the, the hotels is that we do get patients all the way from Northern Ontario. There are patients who drive three to three and a half hours one way just to come and see us in the clinic. But if we do offer an intervention, they do stay back overnight. And sometimes the government of Ontario does pay for it. But the way the referral system works is that uh, we need a referral from your family physician or from another specialist who actually gives us a comprehensive history as well as what has been tried so that we don't keep reinventing the probable view and we can try something different and we can think out of the box. And as I said, we are there to help the patient to find themselves in the forest of pain that they lost. Excellent. Well, thanks once again for that. And I just encourage the viewers to check out the Alivio Clinic if you're in Toronto via your physician and maybe learn something from the website as well. You learn a lot from the website and we also have uh, a Facebook page which is run by our uh, CEO where there are quite a few articles he, he keeps posting generally in relation to pain that's published that we find interesting. So that's another page that you could go for, the Alivio Pain Clinic uh, on Facebook. Okay, well, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Wayne. Thank you for giving an opportunity, and I hope together we can help more people out of chronic pain. Thanks so much.